Well, um, hopefully, bit by bit, you're going to see the uh, Little Mermaid set kind of go away. And, you know, we've been doing this series on um, kind of connected to Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid story, not the, the Disney version, and we were, you know, talking about um, different things um, that are similar to the movie and similar to the musical and things that were very, very different. Um, you know, one of the things that is very similar is, you know, we see up here, this is um, Ariel stuff. I mean, I mean, look at this stuff. Uh, isn't it neat? Wouldn't you say her collection's complete? Um, you know, you, you can look at that. And when she sings that song, you know, there's this sense of, like, despondency. Because in a sense, it's true. She has everything. But everything's not good enough. And so she wants something, something more. She wants not so much more. She wants something, something different. And the problem is, is that what she treasures is not what necessarily her father treasured. And because what she treasures is not what the father treasures, she really can't stay around the father anymore. She's going to leave. She wants to leave. And she's willing to risk everything, even her very life. She's willing to risk everything to get the things that she wants, that she treasures, that her father doesn't treasure. Because her father had created this world, and this world was a world that really did have everything, everything she could need, everything she could want. And the story's kind of funny because the, the movie version, she kind of falls in love with this prince that she sees. But in the story, she actually falls in love with a statue. Think about that. Not even, not even a real person. She's willing to leave risk everything because of falling in love with a statue. Well, it's more than that, as we talked about. There's also this desire for immortality. And so when we look at that, that story about what she's willing to risk to, to have a chance at getting all of this, and we, we, we understand that we kind of connect with this story. Because for all of us, there's this when we're driven by the things that we want, then we will never be satisfied. We will always want more. We will always want different. But when we learn to treasure what God treasures, something happens, something different. And I think part of the reason that we, we struggle with this is that we don't know why. We don't know why we were created in the first place. We don't know why God made us the way he did, why he provided the world that he did. See, kind of like Little Mermaid, she has all this stuff, but she doesn't really have a sense of purpose. She sees her sisters, and she's like, yeah, okay, it's nice. She wants something more. And I think it's good for us to remind ourselves, you know, why did God save us? I think one of the things that, that kind of crippled the church in America 
for most of the 20th century and now going into the 21st century is that we weren't either taught or we didn't ask or we really didn't really understand why did God save us? We were just happy that God saved us. We never bothered to ask why. We assumed he saved us just to save us. He saved us just because we were in trouble. That's a bad assumption. Get back to even asking the question, why did he create us? And there's a lot of people that never ask this question about why he created. They believe God created, but they never ask why. Why did he create? And we know some of the answers. We know why he, some of the reasons he didn't create. We know he didn't create because he was lonely. We know he didn't create because he was bored. But do we ever ask, why did he create? And not just that he created us, but he created us in the way that he did. He created us in this way that, that we have a mind and we can choose. Why that way? And then after we chose to reject why he created us, after we chose to say we would rather exist for a completely different reason, even after we chose so much that we, God became so distant that we began to think maybe there's no God at all. He still loves us. Why? Is it because he can't help himself? Because he's the ultimate codependent? He's just so needy? I don't think so. So why did he create us? Why does he love us? Why, when we went our own way, did he, did he save us? And, you know, these are big questions, and they're big questions that a lot of times we don't ask. Because... It gets in the way. If I'm thinking about bottom line, if I'm pastor and I'm bottom line pastor, what do I care about? I care about you, know, you uh, becoming a Christian. I care about making sure we dunk you in the baptismal. I care about you know, increasing the number of people coming. I care about you know, telling more people. That's what I care about. When I care about those things, I don't wanna talk too much about why. As a matter of fact, I would I'd really like to just have a bunch of people who don't ask why. Because why slows us down. Thinking slows us down. We begin to say, like, understanding why, I just want to know what to do. And so we've given in to that. You want a big fancy word you can show off to your friends? It's called pragmatism. The church, by and large, in the United States, has given in to pragmatism. What works? What can we count? And we certainly, when you're pragmatic, you don't have time for why. Unless you can somehow convince me that by telling you why will increase our bottom line, I don't have time for why. Why is not pragmatic. Going deeper is not pragmatic. If I was a um, military officer, what would I rather have? Would I rather have a bunch of soldiers who accepted their training and accepted their orders without question? 
Or would I want to have a bunch of soldiers that were asking why? Why about everything? Why we got to wear green? Why do we got to carry these heavy packs? Why are we in this battle? Why we got to do it that way? Why can't we do it a different way? Why can't I sleep in? Why can't we fight at noon after everybody's well rested? Why, why, why? What would you rather have? I would rather have the other. So why? Again, not going to solve that in telling you in 60 seconds or less why God did all this. But I'm going to tell you this. Something for you to nosh on mentally. Why does he save us? He saves us so that we have an opportunity to be who he created us to be. Not you, not me, but all of us, collectively. When God was creating, he wasn't creating individual human beings. He was creating a kingdom. And a kingdom is made up of, of, of lots of people. And he created us so that we could be part of that kingdom. And when we decided we wanted to go a different way, and he invites us back one by one, he invites us back to be part of this kingdom. And it's not just for our own sake and our own blessing. That's what a lot of people think. We were talking about this in Sunday school today, that a lot of people only want to love God, only want to serve God if somehow they're being helped or they're being blessed. But no, he doesn't save you just to save you, and he doesn't save you just to bless you. He saves you so that now you might do your part to help advance his kingdom. He saves you so that he can more effectively bless others through you. I will rarely write on a card, may God bless you. It's not that I don't want God to bless you. I just feel that People hear that enough. What I often will write on a card, a birthday card, or any kind of card is, may God use you. May God bless others through you. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. It's why he saves us. And unfortunately, when people are told that becoming a Christian and being saved is the end of it, they begin to believe everything else is optional. Everything about being part of the church, knowing God's word, being a disciple, you know, being part of a community, all that's optional. Because I got the main thing. I got the main thing. I got that, you know, life after death thing. I'm good with God. I got that. And then he promises to bless me if I do good stuff. Everything else is optional. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not optional. And a matter of fact, the word optional doesn't really even make sense if we understand Christianity. It's like, I've used this example before, but it's like if I had a bucket of water and dumped it on Gene, and I said, Gene, it's optional for whether you're going to be wet or not. You would be like, it ain't optional. When water hits him, he's going to be wet. 
All this stuff about hungering after God's word, about wanting to be a disciple, about wanting to grow in your faith, about wanting to be the church, a healthy community of disciples. When we become Christians, it should become natural to us, not optional. It shouldn't feel like I'm being forced. It shouldn't feel like it's a a list of duties. It's not optional. It should be natural. And so when we become Christians, when we're saved, we need to know that we're saved for a purpose. And the purpose is to be the kingdom. The purpose is is to show the world the difference that happens, not in my life or your life, but the difference that happens in our lives when Christ is Lord. changes. Something changes because we see the world the way God sees the world. And when we see the world the way God sees the world, we value what he values. His treasure is now our treasure. And that's hard. Hard to do. Because we tend to treasure the things that that seem to give us something right now, immediately tangible. It's hard for us to treasure what he treasures. As a result, the true treasures that God's placed in this world are often taken for granted, just assume they're going to be there, or they're just ignored. So we come to this text, we're returning to the Sermon on the Mount today. And in this text, we're going to look at what Jesus says. Remember, Jesus is teaching his followers. He's you know, talking to thousands of people that are sitting on a hillside, and he's, and he's talking to them, and he's telling them, what does it mean to be a disciple? This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. This is what you think. This is what you do. So the first thing that he wants to make clear is that what you treasure reveals your heart. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you treasure reveals your heart. What Jesus is saying is not what you say you treasure. If I were to give you a list and say, you know, what are the things you treasure? Can you put it in order of what you treasure? Most valuable to least valuable. And I put stuff like family and God and church and, you know, job and money and power and reputation and all those things, you know. And you could put other things on your list. And I ask you to put them in order. I'm pretty sure all of you would get the order right. And they would look kind of the same. God would be somewhere near the top, if not on the top. Family would be way up there. It's not whether you can put everything in the order they're supposed to be in. It's are you getting everything in the order in how you live your lives? What do you treasure? What does your life show that you treasure? 
Instead of asking you to put stuff in order, you might ask yourself this. When you make a schedule for the week, what's the first thing you put on that schedule? Is the first thing you put in there is like, you know, time I spend with God, you know, being at, you know, Bible study or church, time I personally am reading scripture, time that I'm serving, time that I'm helping, ministering. When you hear about an opportunity at the church to help, to minister, to come together as a community, do you immediately go, I'm going to put that on my calendar? Or does it kind of be more like, I'm going to put a bunch of other stuff, and if the God stuff fits, that's great. But it's not going on first. What's going on first are, you know, my activities. What's going on first is, is my work. What's going on first is, you know, my kids' activities. That's going on first. And then I'll build the rest around it. What do we really value? What will you drop? What will you drop to do? You'll drop everything to go do it. Now, some of you know, I'm, I share this um, thing with God that we both are fans of the Dallas Cowboys. And the Cowboys are coming to play a preseason game in August. Now, I actually have tickets for the game, so I'm good. But I wonder, like, if I didn't have tickets, if my friend called me Friday night, said, hey, got tickets for the game tomorrow, I wonder what kind of things would I drop to make that happen? Oh, uh, I have a, I'm supposed to do a funeral, but I think I can rush it, you know, get through that funeral. Instead of an hour, I try to cut it down to 15 minutes, and I get to the game, right? Oh, you know, I, you know, I promised my wife I would take her out for dinner, but she'll understand. It's the Cowboys, right? I mean, what, what would I drop to make that happen? Uh, my family has been in theater, and I have gripes about theater. And one of the gripes about theater is peop, you know, people, family, parents, children are so in love with theater, they will violate every rule they have in their lives so that they, they can be involved in theater. I mean, we were the same way. The only difference was I was complaining the whole time. Like, I remember when my eldest was in the first, like, one of her first like, music, or musicals when she was really young. She was in The King and I. And she would be there 12 hours a day. And I'm like, what parent, what good parent would allow their kid to be somewhere 12 hours a day? We have child labor laws, but they don't apply because they're volunteering. Apparently, if you volunteer, you can work people to death. But if you're paying them, you only can work children for like three or four hours a day. And I would just complain about it, but I realized, like, People treasure this so much. They're willing to compromise all these other things. I mean, I'm the kind of dad like, hey, kids want to stay up till 9, 30, 10, 11, whatever. We're having a good time. Let's just do it. My wife's like, she was like sleep Nazi. 
you know, 7.30, kids are in bed. 8 o'clock, kids are in bed. No compromise. Except when they're in a musical. <laughs> ah, you're in drama. Oh, we can stay up all night. Right? What do we compromise? Maybe your thing is in theater. Maybe your thing is it's, it's sports. Maybe your thing is in sports. Maybe your thing is, you know, they got that sale at Alamoana. And it starts at 8 a.m. Sunday morning. Ah, what is it? I don't know. How do we make decisions? What will we drop everything to go do? Tells us something. Tells us something about what we value. And sometimes it's, it's a good thing on the other side. Like if you hear about, um, you know, no matter how busy you are, no matter what's going on, if you hear about a friend, you know, parent just died, you'll drop everything to go help them. You'll drop everything to, to give them a call, send them a text, make sure they know you're thinking about them. So sometimes this works out in a good way. But what do we really treasure? What do we really value? What are you spending your time on? What are you spending your money on? What are you spending your talents on? When you, you know, what will you drop? What will you pay any price for? Human beings are, we're weird. Like, if we decide something is valuable, we will pay any price for it. Some of you are too young. And usually, you know, I criticize the millennials or the Gen Xers, but these are actually, sadly, applies to baby boomers and maybe some Gen Xers. Anybody still have beanie babies? Beanie babies. <laughs> Did anyone ever think, I actually had someone tell me this, and I was sad for them. This was back in the 90s. And they said, you know, this is going to be for my kids' retirement. I'm buying all these beanie babies because they're going to be super valuable. Um, the beanie baby market crashed somewhere in the 90s. And it was sad because beanie babies were jumping out of small, uh, high, you know, sky, high rises and plummeting to their death. No, I'm kidding. But um, Beanie Babies aren't alive. They're not actual babies. But we put so much value that we would spend so much money on that. And one generation doesn't understand the other generation. I see, like, things that my daughters would just do. They'll just put every effort. They'll spend their last dime, even if they're not going to have food. They would rather go do that, and, and I don't understand it. But then I realize, you know, there's things I'm the same way about. What do we really value? What you treasure reveals your heart. Well, the second thing he says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This verse makes no sense to us if we don't really understand how ancients thought about the eye. So how ancients, what the ancients thought about the eye, and it actually is, 
not as crazy as it sounds, but they thought that the eye, that light came out of the eye. And the light that came out of the eye met light that was coming from the object. So the light from the eye, light from the object would come together, and then there would be light that would go back into the eye, and then we would see. It's not that far off. I mean, it's a little crazy, but it's not that far off. We know that the eye plays some function. We know that the object plays some function. We know light plays some function. But that's what they're thinking of. And so when he says, your, that's why when he says your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. He's saying if your eye is doing its job, light's going out, light's coming back, your body's full of light. But if not, if your eye's bad, if it's unhealthy, then it's full of darkness. I think what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about the role that the eye plays as an intermediary. What is the eye doing? Well, the eye working with the brain is interpreting the signals that are coming into it. And if that interpretive machine is broken, you're not going to get anything right. Oh, you might accidentally get things right. But if that interpretive machine isn't working properly, you're going to get a lot wrong, if not everything wrong. You're going to look at the same facts that someone else looks at. You may even have more facts than someone else has. But if the interpretive machine isn't working, it's going to come out with the wrong answer. In fact, it's going to come out with darkness. You see, when we become Christians, what's supposed to happen to us is we're supposed to begin to be able to see the world the way God sees the world. So when we see something, we interpret it the way he interprets it. Of course, we're limited in that. We need help. And that ability is supposed to grow as we grow. But it's that ability to, to, to interpret what we see. And to not interpret it our way, but interpret it God's way. You see, that's part of the problem that, that, that we have in, in when we read scripture or, or when you're even listening to a sermon is all of you are interpreting. When you go out and you, you see the homeless, you're all interpreting. You can't help it. It's who we are. We interpret if we're not interpreting, it's just because we're not paying attention. But if we're actually paying attention, we're interpreting things that come into us. And the question is, are we interpreting things the way God interprets things? Are we interpreting things the way that God, who is holy, and God, who is loved, interprets things? That's what we want to know. Is that eye broken? Is it not working properly? Is it not whole? Is it not healthy? Because if it's not, it's really difficult to grow. I know people who, who have spent more time than all of us together studying the Bible, but that interpretive filter is broken. Their knowledge doesn't make them more like Christ. In fact, it makes them more judgmental. It makes them more closed off. 
or it makes them interpret the Bible in such a way that they're, they're willing to embrace everything society says is okay, and they're willing to embrace it as okay. It's good. Because that interpretive machine is broken. Do we see it? Because, see, if it's broken, if it's broken, and you don't know it's broken, you actually might be sitting there thinking, I'm an okay Christian. I'm a pretty good Christian. I'm a pretty good person. But that's because you're interpreting it through a broken machine. You could also be doing the opposite. You could be going, I'm no good. You know, I fail all the time. I constantly find myself in, you know, falling short. And if your interpretive machine is broken, then you might actually be a lot better than you think you are. That's why we need each other. We need each other because none of us see perfectly. We need help. That's why we need God's Word. Because God's Word helps kind of adjust that machine. It helps us to see more clearly. Otherwise, we're never really going to see true light. We're only going to see variations of darkness. And unfortunately, if no one is presenting true light, if you're not in God's Word and really understanding true light, then you will mistake variations for darkness as light. But make no mistake, you are only seeing darkness. Well, what's the last bit here? In verse 24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and mammon. There's several truths here. The scariest one is simply this. The thing that you treasure, the thing you truly treasure, is your true Lord, your true master. You crave attention, you crave People acknowledging you, you crave power, you crave possessions, you crave luxury, you crave comfort and ease, you crave security. I don't care what it is. If it's what you truly treasure, that has become your master. If Jesus has, is saying now, or Jesus told you 30 years ago, I want you to risk everything and follow me, and you didn't risk everything, because your real master was comfort and security and stability. You can only serve one master. And we're not told this enough. We're not confronted with this enough. We're told that we can, we can rest easy east of the Jordan. We can, we're told we can be a good, faithful, servant of Christ and still treasure things above him. 
It's not true. Our treasure will become our master. We, the second truth here is that we all need a master. We all need a master. We will all serve someone or something. And you can think that you're going to become, you're going to be the purely independent, purely free individual, the one that I have no master, I have no Lord. You know, we were talking about this a couple of days ago about how, you know, when we were teenagers, some of us might have said this, and this isn't a new thing. This is like, goes back, I don't know, as long as there's been teenagers, which is probably about 100 years or so. I can't wait till I get out of this place. Can't wait till I get out of under this roof so I can be free and I can do whatever I want to do. Don't raise your hand if you had those thoughts. But we kind of connect with those thoughts. But no. What's really happening is you are going to exchange one master for another. You're going to exchange one Lord for another. And you might not even know, you might not even know who or what is really controlling you. And you think that you're free. No. We were made in such a way, God made us in such a way that we would need a Lord. We need a master. We need God. You see, this idea of money or mammon, what it meant in that day, you know, we think of money and we think, oh, back then they just had currency like we had. And they, they had currency, but it wasn't as common and as powerful as our currency is today in our lives. Um, if I tell you that I'm rich and you go, what do you mean you're rich? You, you really think that I have lots of money. But if I tell you I'm rich because I have 20 chickens in my yard and three goats, you might go, hmm, not sure you're rich. You're rich in chickens, right? But in this economy, it's a little different. First century economy. So what is mammon? It's more than money. It's all possessions that make up someone's wealth. It's all possessions. That's what... Jesus is saying, saying you can't have two lords. You're either going to be controlled by your possessions or you're going to be controlled by me. But don't think you can play in between. You're either going to be giving all your time and devotion and worship to your possessions or you're going to give it to me. Then you go, well, that's sad. It's not really sad. You see, if your possessions are your master, your possessions don't have a will. Your possessions are just stuff. And in fact, it's unreliable stuff. We think it's reliable, but is it really reliable? You might go, I own my house. Someone might even say, you have it forever. I never say this when I go to cemeteries. 
But when people say, oh, sir, it's where they're going to be forever, resting place, memorial. I never say, do you know in the news a month ago when they were digging up a parking lot so that they could build a high-rise, they found a cemetery? And do you think 150 years ago, people were at that cemetery going, this is, this is the place. It's forever. People say, I own my house. Do you own your house? You only own your house as long as the laws allow you to own your house. Do you think if another country invades our country that they're going to respect your land ownership? What do we trust in? Trust in our bank accounts? Do we trust in, you know, all that we have saved? If you do, know that a lot of that's not physical stuff. It's kind of electronic. You can kind of make that disappear like that. Ever had your identity stolen? Trusting in possessions, trusting in money, trusting in things, it's a problem because, first of all, it's not a, it's just stuff. And second of all, you're basing it on something that may or may not be here. It's sad if those are our only options. But one of, what if one of your options for Lord, one of your options for Master, is the being who created you, the being who knows you better than you know yourself, the being that loves you, the being who made a way for you to come back even though you were insisting on going away. The being who promises to walk with you and love you. The God who has all power and all knowledge and is perfectly good. Sounds like a pretty good master. Sounds like a pretty good Lord. Make no mistake, our treasure is going to become our master. Our possessions will become our master if that's really the focus of our lives. You know, I asked this question last week and I was it was good to hear one of the parents come and say that question was so good. Like, I asked the question of, do you know what your children believe? Have you really had deep conversations with them? And do your children know what you believe? Think about the conversations you've had with your children, and for some of you, it may even be grandchildren. In what you do and what you say, what do they think your treasure is? And is somewhere on the list, and hopefully at the top of the list, that what mom and dad treasure most is Jesus Christ. What grandma and grandpa treasure most is what God treasures. 
Is that what's on top of the list? If not, pray, think. If that's truly who you are, how can I give the right message to my children, to my grandchildren, to the people around me? How can I let them know that what I treasure is what God treasures? And that's how I live my life.